Amen. Take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets among you, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. It's on in the speaker, I think, is the issue. Yeah. Thank you. Let's pray together. Living God, we offer you praise and thanks for your word, and we pray now that as we look unto it, you would encourage us. As we have just sung about the return of Christ, we pray that you would help us to see the glories of this truth, to be prepared for it even when the world denies it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning, brothers and sisters, contains a warning and an encouragement. Sometimes warnings are just that. They're warnings. Don't do this. Don't do that. Beware of this. Beware of that. Sometimes, however, we receive encouragements. Hey, you did a good job when you did this. Hey, nice work when this project... at your job was undertaken. But occasionally in life, there are opportunities where there is a warning mixed as well with an encouragement. That is our text this morning. This text includes both a warning and an encouragement to the recipients. Here's the warning. False teachers will come. False teachers will come. Peter has been building up to that all in chapter 1. But there's an encouragement as well. Peter's argument is that these false teachers will be judged. So don't think the long period of time prior to that judgment means that they won't be. Hey, the warning, they're coming. They came in the past, they will come in the future. The encouragement Their judgment is sure. So don't think, perhaps in the midst of suffering under their terror, don't think that their judgment will not come. Notice at chapter 2, verse 1, there were also false prophets among the people. Peter begins with the pattern of history. You remember in chapter 1, he's talked about the common faith that believers have through the promises and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. These saved ones are to grow 
in sanctification. They are to add certain qualities to their faith. They are to make their calling and election sure and that the Scriptures are a necessary means for us. But now Peter shifts. There were, there were also false prophets. He is referring, of course, to the Old Testament story, isn't he? There were false prophets among the people of old. But then notice, even as there will be false teachers among you. Now, Peter's not the only one to do this. Jesus predicts this. So does Paul. So does the author of Jude. Let's just take a look at these instances. Peter really is joining in with the chorus of other words. Matthew 24, verse 11. Hear what the Lord Jesus said. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Then turn over to the story of the church, Acts chapter 20, verse 29. There Paul gives these words to the Ephesian elders. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Jude. Jude chapter 1 and verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, when Peter uses the phrase false teachers, the underlying word in Greek is pseudo-didaskaloi. Pseudo-teachers. They're pretend teachers. They call themselves teachers. But they're false So what are we to learn then about these false teachers through the hand of Peter? I want us to see three things. Firstly, they bring in secret heresies. Secret heresies. Look what he says there. Even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. That's the first thing that we see about these false teachers. They bring in heresies and they do it secretly. Now notice, Peter uses the word destructive. These aren't just false ideas. These aren't just things that are, you know, something that various Christians can agree to disagree with. These are false teachings that lead to destruction These are false teachings that lead to damnation. This isn't a debate over the timing of the Lord's return. This isn't a debate over the recipients of baptism. This isn't a debate over the four or five points of Calvinism, so-called. These are teachings that lead to destruction, to damnation. These are heresies which subvert the foundation of the gospel. This is an important thing to say because in our day, the word heresy gets batted around all of the time. 
If you want to see the word heresy this week, just go on Christian social media. It seems as though everyone is calling everyone else a heretic. The problem is, what do we mean when we use the word heresy? Peter has in view something that leads to damnation, destruction. For instance, a denial of one of the main tenets of the faith. Perhaps a denial of one of the statements in the Apostles' Creed. If you don't believe in one God existing eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you will not be saved. If you do not believe that there is sin and there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, buried, and raised, you will not be saved. George Gillespie a Scottish commissioner to that great gathering of theologians in the 1640s known as the Westminster Assembly, writes these words, quote, Heresy is a gross and dangerous error, voluntarily, voluntarily held and factiously maintained by some person or persons within the visible church in opposition to some chief or substantial truth or truths grounded upon and drawn from the Holy Scripture by necessary consequence, end quote. I think it's fair for us to say that certain things may be error, but not heresy. But heresy is error that leads to damnation. It means that you, holding to that belief stubbornly, knowingly, even in the face of correction and refusing to let it go, you are demonstrating that not only are you outside of Christ, but if you're teaching it, you're a false teacher. So perhaps even in our day when the word heresy is being batted around, we ought to be careful that we don't refer to believers as heretics. Secret heresies. That's what they're bringing in. Heresies, but notice how they're doing it, secretly. That's what Peter says, isn't it? Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is done either in timing or in method. Here's what I mean. If this secret bringing in is timing, it could be a slow creep over time. Just a a trickle over the course of a little while in the life of a church or a group of churches. We can just study the history of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. And there have been in many segments a slow trickle within a church or a denomination or a group of churches. A false teaching so false that it is indeed heretical. And over time, it leads to the demise of that church or that denomination or group of churches. But then perhaps even more in view is the kind of secret that is their method. They're doing this in a sinister way. They're hiding what they do as they do it. They're good at words. John Calvin, when speaking this text, writes this, quote, By these words he points out the craftiness of Satan and of all the ungodly who militate under his banner that they would creep in by oblique turnings as through burrows underground, end quote. These false teachers are bringing in secret heresies. 
But you know, Peter is not the only one to talk to this kind of method either. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. There we read these words. The Lord Christ said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in what? Sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Or consider the words of Paul. When he writes in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4, And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Now he's dealing in Galatians with a particular kind of false teaching. Peter will, as we see, have one in view as well. But there is this need to be on guard for secret heresy. Brothers and sisters, let me just submit to you one particular practical way that we can guard against secret heresy. I think the best defense against secret heresy is open and public confession of doctrine. Open and public confession of doctrine. When a church or group of churches says publicly and openly for the world to see and for churches to test, this is what we confess the scriptures to say. Now, of course, having a confession of faith doesn't make you fully immune from heresy. But it does make it rather difficult when the whole congregation is growing in doctrine for someone to slip in and say, well, you know, I'm not real sure that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I'm not real sure that God is one God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Open and public confession of doctrine is crucial when we've been given the warning that people will come in secretly with false doctrine. Here at our church, we try by God's grace to take that seriously. We encourage the teachers and men who preach the word of God to know what our confession of faith is. What we believe the scriptures teach. That's what we mean by a confession of faith. We live in a day, brothers and sisters, where so many people in the broader church of Jesus Christ are disconnected from local churches, and much theology is discussed on the internet. Here's a question for us to consider. How much of what we read on the internet of so-called Bible teachers is disconnected from the discipline and guidance of a Christ-organized church or group of churches? You see, we ought to remember that letter after letter after letter in the New Testament, the people are told to do what? Guard the teaching. If you've been influenced by a teacher online, or perhaps somewhere else, outside of the local church, if you've been influenced by a teacher, who is guarding his teaching? You know, brothers and sisters, It's entirely possible that in a church like ours, I could get up here one Lord's Day and begin to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I know what would happen in this church. By God's grace, some of you would be sitting there looking at your spouse going, what is happening? Others of you men would be very quick to say, brother, what has happened? You're denying the resurrection or the return of Christ? 
We don't confess the scriptures to teach that. If I was to get on the internet, start writing away, telling the world, hey, you've heard in the resurrection of Christ, you've heard of it, but it's not true. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that at least some of you in this congregation would say, brother, you are denying the scriptures. You may be called a teacher in our midst, but you are not free to deny the truth of God's word. Who is it that is guarding and guiding the teaching that we receive from the internet, from social media? And I would just encourage you, if you find a teacher who has no connection, really, to the guidance and discipline of a local church, you need to beware. Because now secrets are worldwide secrets. In the first century, they were just local church to local church. But what, what are we to make of this secret heresy? Notice what Peter says next. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Now this is interesting. We've made the argument that they're teaching such error that it leads to damnation. And now Peter says, but they've been bought of the Lord. What are we to make of that? Now, interestingly enough, Peter uses the word, even denying the Lord. I love that. You know why? (laughs) Because Peter once denied the Lord, didn't he? Three times. But he was restored. The Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin. Jesus, the Savior who doesn't let go of any who are in him, received him again by the grace of repentance. But what does it mean that these false teachers are denying the Lord who bought them? You see, Peter may have said in a moment of weakness, the grave lie, I've never even known the man. We don't want to minimize that. But the kind of denial that Peter seems to have in view here is the kind of denial that is ultimate or permanent. John Gill in the 1700s argues that the phrase bought them in 2 Peter 1 speaks to temporal mercies and deliverance. I think he's right. You see, it's entirely possible for people to be brought in to the fold, the local church, to be seated here, to be baptized, to come to the Lord's table, to even rise to the level of Sunday school teacher, gifted brother, elder, or deacon. And they have temporal mercies upon them. They have the communion of the saints. They are the beneficiaries of certain truths that are being taught. But they're not truly united to Christ. Now the reason that I think that's the best interpretation is because Peter has already said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that true Christians are kept to the end. Remember that? 1 Peter 1, 5. That we are kept unto the day. Thus, this passage here can't mean that these true believers, saved, who now are denying the Lord and have lost their salvation. Rather, they were brought into the community of faith with the common blessings bought by Christ for his church to sit at the table where weekly they heard of Christ's death for sinners. To see the changes of life among the baptized ones. And yet, ultimately, to rise to the place 
of teaching falsehood. Peter will later say this in 2 Peter 2, 20, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. You see, brothers and sisters, that holy commandment that we will speak of in just a few weeks in 2 Peter 2.20, that message of Scripture which Peter has been declaring in both of his letters is that Christ has come. He's come to save sinners. That He is fully God and fully man. And that He comes to offer Himself as a ransom for many. That He lays down his life that people who realize by God's grace that they've sinned against a holy God can rest on him full and complete. Rest on Christ knowing that he will take them home. Knowing that his perfect life is now the record that God is looking at. Listen, maybe someone invited you here today and you don't know anything about false teachers. You wouldn't know whether a teacher was false or true, but you know that you are not right with God. And through your own efforts, you've been trying to earn your way to whatever God it is. Listen, as Paul told a group of people in Greece long ago, let me tell you who the God is that you think that you are worshiping. The living God, the creator of the world, one God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made all things perfect. And yet we, his pinnacle of creation, have fallen in all of us. Now in our hearts, with our actions, with our thoughts, we rebel against God. You are a rebel against God. And whether you realize it or not, you are at war with him. And he has sent his son with terms of peace. Lay down your sins. Lay down your false attempts. And look to Christ. You may say, well, I've heard of this. But I'm not sure I've laid all my weapons down. I'm not sure that I've stopped sinning enough. I'm not sure that I believe hard enough. The message of the gospel is that you fly to Christ. You look on Him as the Savior of any who will come to Him. You see, these false teachers were denying aspects of the Savior. What was it specifically that they were teaching? Well, it's likely that Peter references this in the next chapter. 2 Peter 3. 3 through 7. There, Peter writes these words. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that the that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which that world then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's a long paragraph. What is it that they're likely denying? They're denying in some way the return of Christ. And they're denying, because of that, coming judgment. And so, they are pointing to permissiveness in sinful living. Listen, Peter has said, 
in both of his letters. Wait for Christ to return and live godly lives. They're saying, don't worry about Christ's return and live how you will. The sinful living as a consequence. 2 Peter 2.18, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through what? The lusts of the flesh. Through lewdness. The ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Notice again the distinction. They haven't actually escaped, but they're leading astray those who have actually escaped. What is the first thing then that Peter reveals to us to be on guard against? Those who would bring in secret heresies. But secondly, Peter would have us to see their seductive patterns. Their seductive patterns. Look as he continues in verse 2. And many will follow their destructive ways. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Some translations render this destructive ways. Others render it shameful ways. What does that mean? We get some indication if we look at that word. That word in the Greek language is used several times in the New Testament and it points in almost every instance to sexual sin. There's a permissiveness in what they're doing with their bodies. They have the eyes of adultery. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 3, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness and lusts. Same Greek word. Here in 2 Peter 2, verse 14, these false teachers are described in this way, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. You see, when you teach that Christ isn't coming, or that judgment will be delayed in some way. That judgment is nowhere in sight. Sexual sin is often a main sin that will enter in. Think of the history of the Bible. The leader of the old covenant people was simply going to go up on the mountain to meet with God. And within a matter of weeks, the old covenant people were involved in sexual sin. Is this not the major sin that Paul had to deal with in 1st and 2nd Corinthians? And notice what happens because of all this. These false teachers bringing in secret heresies and living and teaching according to seductive patterns. Notice what happens to the witness of the church. 2nd Peter 2.2 Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. The gospel becomes maligned because of the lives of those professing Christ, but teaching false doctrine and living in false ways. Notice then, verse 3. We get the heart sin of these false teachers. What's really going on in their hearts? What's motivating this? Second Peter 2, 3. By covetousness. They will exploit you with deceptive words. Notice that the heart sin of the false teachers is laid out for us there. It's covetousness. Among other commandments, they're breakers of the tenth commandment. And in their covetousness, they're seeking to exploit the people of Christ. 
This ought to be a grave question for us, but are there any ways in which we are tempted to use Christ, his church, or his word for selfish gain? Or perhaps another question, do you operate among Christians with a spirit of covetousness? If you answer these questions in a positive way, that doesn't necessarily make you a false teacher, friend. But it may set you on the path that they were on. Covetousness. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. These false teachers bring in secret heresies and they have seductive patterns. This is why it's so important for us to consider the accountability for the teaching of the word of God that happens. It's why it's so important for us to, on the one hand, be so thankful for certain kinds of larger parachurch ministries and organizations that are out there. For us to rejoice in the resources. Some of us had the opportunity just yesterday to sit at a conference had the opportunity to sit with the speaker of that conference for a few moments and hear him just recount what was happening in the 1950s and 60s and 70s in the Reformed Movement, so-called, in the United States, and how the Lord raised up all of these various teachers among multiple denominations. Some of those teachers are teachers that God used in a powerful way to bring some of us to where we are today. So we thank the Lord for that. But now as that pattern continues, let us not think that Satan will simply sit there and say, well, I've got to put an end to all of this. What does Satan so often do? I will use all of this. Seductively, what does he do? He increasingly moves teachers away from the accountability of other elders, of other teachers, of churches, where truth and discipline are united. Listen, brothers and sisters, I love you, and I know that you love me, but if I stand up here one day and preach heresy, you ought to swiftly, swiftly discipline me. You ought to say, we love this man. We want to care for his family. We want to provide the help that we can for them, but he need not be teaching the word of Christ right now if he's leading us into heresy. How often do we think that about our influences are they connected to the discipline of a local church secret heresies and seductive patterns but thirdly and this is where the encouragement comes in sure judgment have you grown so weary and tired of false teaching have you ever just stopped and found yourself down or concerned about the amount of false teaching that exists. And yes, I mean the cults. When the Jehovah's Witness come and knock at your door, when the Latter-day Saints come and say that they want to tell you about Jesus. Yes, I mean that. But I I mean even within the so-called church, people denying basic truths of Christianity that have been confessed for thousands of years and being given a platform to do it. Are you not weary The false teachers defiling Christ's church? Have you wondered if it will ever end? Peter declares that it will. Notice, 
He says it in two ways. Look at the last phrase of verse 3. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, secondly, and destruction, their destruction, does not slumber. What does he say is not idle? Their coming judgment. What does he say is not asleep? Their destruction. Don't think that judgment isn't coming on these false teachers. Don't think that the Lord God might not correct and save some of them, but many of them he will bring judgment upon. And I think we could say that Peter is saying in verse 3, hey, false teachers, your judgment is coming. But he's saying to true believers, don't be discouraged. The Lord is not asleep at the wheel. Again, John Calvin says this about this passage of Scripture, quote, Peter endeavors by all means to render the faithful displeased with ungodly teachers that they may resist them more resolutely and more constantly. It is especially an odious thing that we should be exposed to sail like vile slaves. Unless then one is so mad as to sell the salvation of his soul to false teachers, let him close up every avenue that may lead to their wicked inventions. End quote. Sounds like John Calvin's pretty serious. <laughs> as he reads Peter's words about how we should be serious about false teaching. You see, he gives a warning and an encouragement. The warning is, it's coming. He joins with his brother Paul and says, it's coming. They together simply pass on the words of Christ. False teachers, false prophets will come. It really shouldn't surprise us. But there's an encouragement. God will deal with it. God will deal with it. Sometimes we see that temporally, boys and girls, I mean, sometimes right now. But in many cases, the Lord will bring judgment upon those false teachers on that great day when they are deeply wailing. Deeply wailing. Because what? The true Messiah they shall see. You see, it seems in some way or another that the false teachers that Peter was concerned about are those who in some way taught, live how you want. Because Christ's return is not what you've been told. And Peter says, as a man who only has a little while left, I want to keep reminding you of the truths. This is who Christ is. This is what he's done. He's coming again. Live in this way, resting on him, looking for his coming. But beware, there will be many, some of them even secretly among you, who in one way or another say, live how you want. He's not coming. Where is this word of his coming? Maybe it will be more subtle century by century. Peter says, when this happens, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not 
slumber. Brothers and sisters, let me just suggest to us here at Grace very, very practically before we close. A word to believers. Loving and cherishing teaching and doctrine doesn't alone make us immune to heresy. We have to abide in that. We have to take care to watch out for that. We have to ask the Holy Spirit weekly to guide those who teach us, to be in prayer that he will work in our hearts, that he will not lead us let us fall into temptation. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure if you're a Christian, Peter's main concern about all of this was that this kind of false teaching is so bad that lost people like you will not hear of the true saving message of Jesus and they'll be lost. False teaching is not just something for the academics to debate about. It's life and death. Christ and him crucified, buried, risen, ascended, and coming again. That's what it's about. So let us rejoice let us rejoice that in his sovereign, providential hand and guidance, we sit as people who had the proper word taught to us, who have the opportunity to sit under proper teaching together, hearing our brothers and sisters talk properly about the word. What a blessing. And let us, as Peter says, be on guard for these false teachers. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that you would give us the guidance that we need. Help us, O oh Lord. Guard us from secret heresies brought in, from seductive patterns which deny your word. And may we be encouraged to know that you are in control, that the judgment upon those who utter destructive falsehoods about you you will deal with encourage our hearts in these things we pray in Jesus name amen